You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. But it's, it's getting people to type that in. I don't know. I, I, I Names, I've got no idea. Hey, listeners, welcome to the show. Got a name for us? Great. If you want us to really take you seriously, go to autosafety.org, click on the donate button. The more you donate, the more we'll listen to your name idea. That's not true. But we'll like you more. Maybe. That's not true. Well, should we throw out a couple of uh, suggestions? Lemon squeeze, I thought was good. That too, auto was good. Okay. Um, Crash test dummies. What else? Crash test dummies, that might be good. Crash test lemons. I I think a a rock band has that name trademarked, but. Yeah, yeah. anything with dummies in the title is going to be semi-accurate. So that's a start. Might be thought to be too political as well. Right. Uh, anyway, hey, let's uh, let's kick it off. Now that we're speaking about dummies, uh, is this week the government account? Is it the general? No, it's the government accountability office, or is it the general accountability? No, it's the government accountability office. Uh, released a, a study, uh, basically saying, "Hey, we need better crash test dummies. We need newer crash test dummies. Um, not that they're necessarily." bad they're very complex interesting machines but the hybrid three which is the most commonly used crash test dummy uh, and dates back to good old 1986 um it only represents the 50th percentile of adult male which is five feet nine inches and weighs 171 pounds so it does not capture somewhat of my massive frame (laughs) and they only started including nitsa only started including uh, female crash test dummies um, in the early 2000s uh, to reflect that requirement, which is again, and the hybrid three female dummy represents the fifth percentile of adult females at four feet, 11 inches and 108 pounds. Um, but it's a scaled version of larger dummy. It does not reflect a lot of the uh, physiological differences. It lacks sensors in the lower legs. Um, we We lack a lot of sensors around this stuff but how uh so i'll just throw this out to the dummies um how likely is it that these are going to be updated and and who mandates what dummies are used well so. that's a, mandates the dummies <laughs> which dummy we're uh, dummy one and dummy two how are we going to do this michael oh, then i have to decide which one's one or two uh it's too much pressure well, well, let me let me start then with uh, you know, uh, I'll, dummy tool will start. So uh, there's a lot of problems with these things. For example, there's only one point in the hybrid three dummy in the chest that records the compression of the chest. Um, so if you want, and that's right in the middle of the chest. So depending upon how you put the dummy in with the you know exact location of the seat belt. Um, all of those, all those different parameters, you're going to get a very different result for how the dummy responds to the forces of the impact. So it'll have a very poor response if you have a side impact because the particular sensor only looks at longitudinal compression of the chest or straight on compression of the chest. There are other dummies in development, uh, that have been tested that have a much wider range of sensors in them that can look at lateral as well as longitudinal compression. Uh, that's just one example. Also, you know, how it sits on the, on the hip, whether or not you've got a big belly sitting over it. There's, you know, a lot of things going on. And you also got to remember that a, a 10th percentile female is pretty small. It's a four foot 10 woman and you know, that's not representative of, of most of the people that I've met. But so, you know, there's a lot of technical limitations. There are much more advanced dummies in development and available. Uh, the only reason to not use them is the political will. And I will turn that over to dummy one. <laughs> well, I would say there may be a, another few reasons that they're having some problems using these other dummies that we can get into, but I'll back up a little and say um, this was, you know, a report that was mandated by Congress um, basically due to, you know, a lot of questions that were being asked around whether 
females were being protected enough in crashes. We've also asked questions about, you know, whether NCAP should include something like a silver star scale to better protect older drivers who may have, you know, less muscle mass, uh, more brittle bones and other factors that complicate crashes for them. And in fact, probably result in more injuries and, and lower speed crashes for, for elderly folks. Um, but kind of stepping back you know there's a this is a it's a it's a tough area i mean functionally we are asking manufacturers to build you know a one size fits all protection system for you know seven billion differently shaped people you know people are kind of like snowflakes nobody's identical so it, it is a challenge to do that um and what you know, I think the report really found is that NHTSA has not been doing enough over the years to respond to the risks that have been proven um, in these other categories and other demographics. Um, they've missed certain milestones and um, things they needed to get done earlier, getting smaller dummies, getting maybe even larger dummies, getting dummies into the back seats. You know, there's a lot of issues here. Getting female dummies into the driver's seat is something that took a really long time to do. Um, and that's actually shown some benefits and some side crash testing and impact and in cap. So there, it is a complex area, but you know, there's also some, some uh, data problems here. We have a lot of data on how traumatic events affect male athletic young bodies because there's a lot of cadaver testing that's gone on in the past related to military service and and other things there's not a comparable data set for you know older adults females and um children for example and so that really complicates you know how you take the information you get from these dummies to apply it to how the human body actually works in reality and come up with some type of um, information that allows you to make cars safer. So there is a lot of catching up that NHTSA and other agencies need to do. And also, you know, a lot of catching up that science needs to do uh, with the different types of human bodies out there, because um, there's just so much variation that NHTSA is not currently crash testing for, that it's leaving some populations um, less protected than others. So real quick, what is NCAP again? NCAP is the new car assessment program, and it's basically how NHTSA test vehicles rates them in a way that incentivizes manufacturers to build more safety into the vehicles. Okay. And now does, so NHTSA mandates the use of the hybrid three dummy. Uh, does the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, do they use the exact same dummy or do they use more advanced dummies with more sensors? You know, they're not limited by they're not limited by regulations. I believe they probably use uh, differently instrumented dummies and a variety of different dummies. And I know they've made more efforts recently to get dummies into the back seat to represent things like children and other things so that they can get some good rear seat ratings to start pushing manufacturers to focus a little more on the rear seat as we move forward into a world where more people are riding in the back seat. Hmm. The, uh, the, yeah, they, they do use a wider array of dummies, and uh, I encourage our listeners to go to the Humanetics website, H-U-M-A-N-E-T-I-C-S website, because that's one of the leading manufacturers of anthropometric, anthropometric test devices, which is the official name for a crash test dummy. Uh, I was very pleased to learn that they have a 95th percentile elderly crash test dummy in the progress because that's the kind of dummy that is closest to me so i i do have a dummy analog out there hey, you said <laughs> it first uh, that was actually I mean, the last question i had there. <clears throat> is it just one company that manufactures these things is the the design of these dummies is it open source or is it all proprietary i can't imagine there's a huge market for these dummies the design is is, is proprietary everybody's got their own but the anthropometric or the take your time excuse me the, <laughs> <laughs> there are specifications for 
the ATDs or the test dummies that NHTSA can use in the NCAP tests. So the compliant test devices have to be, be built according to those Test devices have to be built according to those specifications. So the specifications have to change before a wider array of test dummies can be brought in. But there are multiple companies uh, doing this work, both here and in Europe, and I suppose in Japan too, though I'm not as familiar with the Japanese. Hmm. Right. Although I think humanetics probably, I would say, dominates the U.S. market as far as I know. Okay. I think that's right, yeah. Well, speaking of older drivers, uh, there was a new study published at the Journal of American Geriatrics Society. Uh, researchers at John, Johns Hopkins University studied the imp, studied the uh, speaking today is difficult. Studied the impact of a 2012 Japanese law which required motorists over 75 to be retune, retune, <laughs> uh, anthropometric uh, routinely screened for cognitive impairments. I think, based on my own performance, they should start it at a much younger age than 75. I agree. Uh, and actually, and, and so in 2017, that law in Japan was amended so that law enforcement could use those medical results to revoke the licenses of people diagnosed with dementia and other conditions. Now, I'm actually not kidding. I think they should be screening everybody at every age for some sort of impairments, um, because I, I think regardless of age, there's a lot of people that shouldn't be on the road. Uh, and I'm including pedestrians in that. But right. I mean, we, we know how we know how much the human mind body can change just within a matter of days versus months. So, I mean, I was just talking about this with an elderly driver who emailed the center the other day. She was looking for a way to um, determine whether people have the cognitive skills to continue driving at advanced stage. And there actually is a lot of tech that's used in the area of driving rehabilitation it's for people that have been injured or had um uh, brain injuries and other things that require them to, to relearn their driving task and these systems are you know I, I the one i saw in california it's like a 350 dollars test and you bring your grandfather or your your kid or whoever is is trying to be is, is being evaluated um and they can test them and say you know what this person has a you know some issues with driving and perhaps shouldn't be allowed to be on the road but i i don't know how advanced what's going on in japan is i'm assuming it's something similar but what they found was that when they started removing licenses from the older drivers that the the rate of old um pedestrians being killed went up because they were walking more um now so there was a it, it, it's it's kind of a it makes you wonder you know if, if we if we implemented for instance in every state in america right now a driving test that required people to go in every year and take it to ensure they're good drivers would we see a corresponding increase in pedestrian deaths because more people are being forced to walk i don't know that is fascinating. I remember it was, I think it was the late 90s where 2020 did a special on older drivers and they weren't, I don't think they focused so much on cognitive. It was more of uh, vision issues. I guess as you got older, there's blind spots that essentially happen in your field of view. And they were showing this, you know, guy in somewhere in Florida um, and they did a vision test on him and like he had massive holes in his vision and you know he's out there driving and like going through an intersection and not seeing a car approaching from the left and not seeing until it's too late slamming on the brakes but i, I imagine that kind of testing is something that should be happening I mean, right now you know just in most states they make you take a you know read this line of an eye chart um why couldn't they just update that to be like to look for these blind spots or am I being well, as Michael as Michael pointed out, there are hidden consequences of that testing. And in communities where you are reliant on automobiles, which is where most of us live, if you're denied access to the automobiles, you've got to find some other way to get around, or you're just gonna be alone in your in your house. So uh, I don't think it's as straightforward as just having a test that you can do in the uh, you know in the um, department of motor vehicles to determine whether or not it's the best solution to take you off the road clearly clearly an alternative 
transportation mode would be a, a big help, and those initiatives should, as a minimum, be coupled. Well, so definitely expand out if you're going to remove this driver's license from people, make sure they actually have another way to get around. Um, sure. Yeah, sense. and I mean, in many European cities, as you know, you know, people have pretty well guaranteed access to public transportation and at reasonable intervals. Uh, where I live, uh, you know, gee, you'd, you'd be standing by the road for six months before a bus comes by, if at all. <laughs> uh, well, hey, look, uh, as we all know, cars drive themselves, so I don't see what the problem is. Oh, good point. Good thank point. you. Thank you very much. Um, okay, let's jump into tires. Because this week, I, for whatever reason, I kept running across articles on tires. Uh, so I'm going to start with the one, the more interesting one, where it's a woman, uh, ABC7 Chicago, uh, this unfortunate customer, she bought tires that she assumed they were new, but they'd been sitting in the tire shop since 2012. Uh, and as a consumer, which was kind of neat, is there's uh, codes on all of your tires. So you see this little embossed writing kind of above the rim where your tire is. The last four digits show the week and year uh, your tire was manufactured. So if it says 3712, that means it was manufactured the 37th week of 2012 or 1912. Who knows how long these tires have been sitting around? Uh, so th this is something I never thought about, but tires will expire because they're rubber and they'll, they'll dry out and rot. And from reading this article, like they're saying, what tires should only last nine years before you have to automatically replace them, or is it ten years? How old can my tires be before they're a hazard? You know, I, I'm, I'm going to say it varies based on who's manufacturing the tire and what they're using in it. Um, but I don't want to purchase, you know, ten-year-old or nine-year-old tires and put them on my car. And I don't think that any consumer really wants to take that risk. Um, I did chuckle a little in the article Goodyear saying they, Oh, that we really don't know anything about this age thing. You're talking about on tires, <laughs> which has to be, has to be a lie, right? Yeah. A Goodyear definitely doesn't have, you know, rooms and rooms full of chemists that have studied the degradation of their own products. So no, they, they're completely naive and tires last forever. Uh, so, Hey, maybe shop around folks and see if there's some other manufacturer that maybe uh, can accept responsibility. Uh, well, I did have a, uh, I do have the experience of one aggressive gas station owner trying to sell my wife a new set of tires, claiming that she had dry rot on all four tires. Um, so, you know, maybe that's a sales technique. Uh, she did not have dry rot on all four tires, by the way. There's an awful lot of tires that have been sitting in the high, in the rivers around the country for a very long time. They don't seem to degrade very rapidly. So I, I don't think there's any extensive set of uh, experimental data on how long tires can last before they're a hazard. And, and you asked the question, how long, how old do the tires have to be on your car before they're a hazard? I haven't seen the way you drive, so I don't really know how to answer that question. It could be the no tire is suitable, Anthony, but you know, if you give us a sample of your driving, maybe we can answer that better. I'm a very safe driver, okay? I think I've pointed out many times that it's other drivers on the road that scare me. It's not me. I'm not the problem. Uh, but, okay, so so what you're suggesting is if you need a new set of tires, get some scuba gear, jump into the nearest river, search around for tires that fit your car, pull them out. Well, you can save yeah. some money that way, I think. Yeah, all right. The, the Potomac River is absolutely full of them if you need a source. Oh, yeah. Well, I've also read somewhere that 85% of drivers think they're better than average, which is that, an interesting statistic. I think that applies in areas beyond driving, just to how humans think of themselves in general. <laughs> hey, I'm an excellent driver, and I can dunk a basketball if the rim is really low. Uh, but So anyway, in this article, some tire expert, I don't know what it means to be a tire expert. Excuse me. Uh, I'll edit that. Um in this uh, article, they mentioned a tire expert. Uh, there's no certification to become a tire expert. So, uh, but he says that uh, you should definitely take uh, tires out of service at 10 years of age. Um, just you know, tire experts. You know, uh, guess you got to believe it. You put the word expert after it. 
Must be true. Um, but interesting. Well, I'm guessing he's probably a uh, forensic expert, uh, maybe a uh, legal legal expert uh, in some sort of manner. But, um, you know, that sounds reasonable to me, uh, 10-year-old tire. I mean, unless there are tires that are manufactured to be to have the tread replaced and other things. So there are tires that could go longer or designed to go longer, but um, I don't want car. I don't want tires older than 10 years on my car. Do you? I don't know. Tires are so reading this article. I was like, Oh, how much would tires cost to replace on my car? And you go to some website and it's like, where do you live? Blah, 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 blah. blah. And it's like a new set of tires on this car. It was like, it's over $500. And I was like, I don't want tires anymore. This is insane. I don't need, you know, and they're recommending some crazy ass tire. I'm like the like Goodyear Defenders or something. I'm like, that sounds a little aggressive for the way I drive. Well, you know, more of the, the Goodyear passive aggressive. They don't make those. They don't they don't they don't make those specifically for New York. <laughs> no. Yeah, I don't think they have I don't think they have a PA rating on the tires. Could be. They have a heat rating, I know. You know, have you ever gone into a tire store, though? It has a, if you have, you'll notice it has a distinctive odor. Yes. And and that distinctive odor is from chemicals evaporating out of the tires. So, you know, there are organic compounds in the tires that do leach out of the tires and go into the atmosphere and, and whatever. But as those chemicals leach out of the tires, it does change the tire chemistry. Is I have no reason to think that ten years is the magic number, but there may well be a magic number that is consistent with the typical tire chemistry. It's also worth noting that different tire companies have different rubber chemistries. So you know, a cheap tire is is not going to become a good tire over time. Um, a good tire may last a lot longer than a cheap tire. It's just a, a lot of variables. I think the, you know, I I think the message here, though, is to check your tires, make sure that they have good tread on them, that they look okay, and they probably are okay if they look okay. Hmm. So you can judge a tire by its cover. Got it. Uh, other tire news is I came across something called airless tires. I know I'm not the first person to come across this, but they're tires that they're, they're well, they're airless. They look really cool, I think. And the the big selling point behind them is you can roll over nails and glass and they won't deflate because there's no air in them. Uh, The downside from reading these articles, they keep talking about, oh, these will be ready next year, next year, next year. And apparently they're at least a decade away. It Uh, sounds like an AV, doesn't it? It does. It does. My AV will come with airless tires. Um, uh, But one benefit I think that we'd all enjoy is that, hey, it reduces vehicle weight. But apparently it increases vehicle friction um, and you have to learn how to drive differently because we're all used to pneumatic tires and the way they feel on the road, whereas apparently these feel very different. They, the way they uh, sit on the road is more flat compared to the more concave way that tires sit, convex. Yeah, you know, on the inside, it's concave. On the outside, it's different. So... There's, I mean, like I said earlier, these these have been promised for a number of years, um, but have never quite made it to market. And a a lot of the reasons for that are um, they're actually heavier than the tires with air in them, noisier. And, um, you know, they look, just to give the listener an idea, they're kind of like a wagon wheel on an old Conestoga wagon, but with flexible spokes. So the wheel can flex as it encounters you know, as it rotates and counters the road and encounters other objects, it's able to flex uh, with its environment. So it's, it, you know, it looks cool. I don't know. It's <sighs> the noise and the weight and probably the cost of these. I'm not sure if it's, you know, an appreciable, you know, benefit over, you know, your average tire with air in it these days. Uh, and, they weigh you know, more? Yeah, they weigh more. Oh, see, I thought they'd weigh less. Hmm. Oh, well, I mean, I think they look cool, but hey, with the noise, with everyone going to electric vehicles, you know, you'll hear the car more. There you go. You know, that would be a benefit. Now, and maybe electric cars need 
tires like this so that they're not uh, causing the problem we're seeing all over the place where tires uh, chemicals are leaching off the roads and into the environment. Um, if EVs are going to way more and they're obviously going to be producing more of this more of those chemicals that come off the tires but maybe 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 an airless tire could be the solution to that problem who knows hey that's a good name for this podcast the airless tire vote now (laughs) the uh it's important to remember that in the future everything will be better yes We've, we've talked about that before so these are still under development and i think that it would be uh probably imprudent to predict what these will ultimately be like based upon their current state of development. They've really just started getting these out onto the road. Uh, all of the issues that we've talked about are, are, are in fact there, but there'll be a lot of development between here and there. And who knows, maybe some newer chemistry will come out that'll make these tires even lighter and uh, track better than current tires. We, but, you know, it'll be a while in the future, everything will be better. And this will be part of that future, I suppose. Speaking of everything better in the future, you know, we think futuristic, we think Tesla. Well, we think Tesla from five years ago. Five years ago, Tesla, we think futuristic. Now we think eh, a couple of years behind. But anyway, uh, Tesla, uh, amazingly enough, a guy goes into a parking lot. He's got a Tesla Model 3. It's white. The car next to him is Tesla Model 3. It's white. He uses his phone, unlocks the car, gets in, drives away, and turns out it's not his car. Not it's... He, the app managed to allow him to unlock somebody else's car, drive away with it. And the other, uh, <laughs> the guy who owned the car they drove with got into his car and found his phone number and called him up and was like, Hey, yeah, you're driving my car. And the guy's like, Oh my God, I'm sorry. But the guy who got in the wrong car still went and picked up his kids, <laughs> which I, I love. He's like, Yeah, I'll be back <laughs> to your car in a bit, but I'm going to go pick up my kids and then I'll come back and we can swap cars. Uh, is it's unbelievable. I thought it was a uh, one of the funniest stories I ever read, and it was great. The article um, they tried to reach out to uh, Tesla to find out how this happened, uh, but <laughs> Tesla's North American corporate mailbox is apparently full. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I think they're testing out a new program where all the Tesla owners just share their vehicles, right? And you have to pay a subscription fee each month if you want your own car. So. Uh-huh. We'll, we'll see how that works. <laughs> you want the new car smell or Bob's car smell? Um, I like that no, but really, strategy. it's, it's a cybersecurity issue. It's it's just another issue, you know, that why we think NHTSA and, you know, we've talked about it with the Hyundai Kia TikTok stuff. And, you know, NHTSA is way behind the DOT, NHTSA, all of us, the, the industry is way behind on securing these vehicles. And, you know, things like this are just the tip of the iceberg. You know, if you give a nefarious actor the ability to get into these Teslas and, you know, hack them, control them that kind of thing that we're talking about a lot different um outcome here rather than happy guy picking up his kid from school and dropping off the other car off so it's you know this is clearly a hole in tesla system i mean back in the day i think that manufacturers had to have something like a thousand different key combinations so there was always a chance if you put your key in someone else's car it might work here where that validation is occurring through an app um doesn't it seems like you could have an infinite number of codes pretty easily that would prevent these this kind of situation from happening so it raises a pretty big question i think about what's going on and what allowed that to take place this is definitely an old problem just in new clothing whereas because there was a there was a car manufacturer must have been uh, 20 30 years ago where their key combinations it turned out they only had like six variations of the key um i think it might have been nissan don't quote me on that whereas yeah and yeah. NHTSA actually put a standard into place. One of the first parts of the theft protection standard was to ensure that manufacturers were making enough different keys, key key code types, you know. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. With software controlling this, yeah, the it's non-trivial. It's, it's trivial to make it so that each car has a unique ID to it. Yeah, there's no physical design involved in a key. Um, it's yeah. code. So no one should have this issue in a Tesla. Yeah, they can no, there billions. I mean, there are some software issues. That, 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 there's a message that passes between the key fob and the car, and that message structure um, is probably attached to 
you know, like an 8-bit word that has a numerical code or 16-bit word or something like that. So there are some, there's there's a less than infinite number of combinations, just to be clear, but it could be a very large number. This is actually kind of an epochal story, though, because this is the first cybersecurity story I've ever read that came out with a happy ending. Usually they're catastrophic. Yeah, I mean, the kids were happy to go, hey, look, you cleaned up all the stuff I spilled in the backseat of the car. I mean, yeah, it doesn't stink anymore, Dad. What did you do? This is great. Oh, we have a red interior now. Thanks, Dad. Uh, but my, my favorite takeaway was the the owner trying to contact Tesla. And of course, there being no test phone number, he sent an email and it got bounced back because the mailbox is full. That's what I want in tech company. Can't handle an email account. Oh, boy. Um, more Tesla because, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> look, this is a podcast on auto safety and they just keep <laughs> making headlines each week. Okay. It was Hyundai Kia fires for a long time, but it's just, it's Tesla, Tesla Wednesday. Um, so there's another Tesla fire truck autopilot issue. Whereas U.S. investigators suspect that a Tesla was operating an automated driving system when it crashed into a fire truck in California last month killing the driver and critically injuring a passenger. Um, this is a crash that happened February 18th in Northern Carolina, uh, Northern California. Yeah. And I think you brought it up briefly on the podcast. And at the time we had no, no idea whether or not it was autopilot related. It's odd still that NHTSA is not really coming out saying, or the NTSB, even if they're looking into it, is not coming out saying, yes, it was autopilot. There seems to be some type of question here as to whether it's autopilot or not, even though NHTSA suspects that it is. That suggests that Tesla hasn't been able to provide them the data from the crash for some reason, which, um, I don't know, sounds, sounds odd to me. Well, we've 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 talked about this before. One of the key things that should happen in the uh, event data recorders is that the, they should be formatted so that anybody can read it. These data should not have to go through the hands of a manufacturer before they get to the public authorities who are investigating the cause of the accident. They, you know, this is a, a actually a very important issue. Doesn't seem to be getting a lot of traction. We've commented on this in the past. But, you know, there there are open standards that would be perfectly satisfactory for the storage of the data and the formatting of the data that would allow people to have rapid access and uh, open access to the data, people being the investigators, right? But, but that has not happened yet, and it's something that our friends over at NHTSA should take into consideration. Right, and, and then presumably even beyond the EDR, which is a very limited subset of data, on Teslas, they're beaming data back to the mothership every millisecond. You know, there is a lot of data stored in the cloud, and it should be relatively simple to provide that to investigators, far simpler than what investigators have had to do in the past, which involves reading the data from what is basically a... a usb driver i mean it's basically a uh, small memory chip that's embedded in the occupant restraint controllers of these vehicles so um that's not easy to access but you know right now i'm assuming here that tesla has all the data on this crash on their servers because it was beamed to them like most of the vehicle data they collect is um so there should be an easier way to get that information to safety investigators and immediately Right. Well, there's no standard right now for how the data is stored or what data is stored outside of the EDR. So uh, there are different systems, different formats, different ways of recording it and different ways of transmitting it. It would be nice to have at least one standardized approach to these so that investigators uh, can find out what the hell is going on as people are dying. I I know we're not touching on this issue uh, this week, but later on we're doing the AV Bill of Rights. And is uh, standardized data storage and transmission is that part of the av bill of rights no that's a great oversight oh look at that we're going to add that on all right um we have a winner we have a winner look at that fred is fred is moving quickly to get his notepad (laughs) some notes and while he does that we're going to do uh this is from the national transportation safety board 
Um, I'm just going to read the whole thing. It's just one paragraph. It's called uh, Electric Vehicle Runoff Road Crash and Post-Crash Fire. This is uh, Coral Gables, Florida, September 13th, 2021. On Monday, September 13th, 2021, about 8.54 p.m., a 2021 Tesla Model 3 long-range dual-motor electric car occupied by a 20-year-old driver and 19-year-old passenger was traveling north in Coral's Gable. The weather was clear, the road was dry, and the area was illuminated by street lamps. As the car approached the signalized intersection with Coral Way, it accelerated, shifted into the southbound lane to pass another car, and then re-entered the northbound lane. After this passing maneuver, the car continued to accelerate, running the red light. The driver then lost control, departed the roadway, and struck two trees in the center median. Both the driver and passenger died. A post-crash fire engulfed the car. Firefighters faced challenges in extinguishing the fire and reported the car's batteries reignited at least once. Um, this is horrific. Uh, and it's also just pointing out that, you know, on essentially perfect road conditions, uh, a quote-unquote self-driving car um, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I'm not a lawyer, but it sounds like the car committed vehicular homicide. Well, the, the, <laughs> this was I, not an AV issue. This right. the kid, the kid stopped in the accelerator to get through the red light. And so oh, he was, at, okay. he was at, at 95 miles an hour as he ran the red light. All so right, this I'm is, sorry, this yeah. is not an AV issue. I, I, I was under the impression that the car from reading this i thought the car did all of this stuff okay no, this, this is just a, this is just a oh. stupidity issue oh yeah this one it was really pointing out uh, in many ways just the 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 that the ntsb has continued to to look at battery fire scenarios and this is another one um now this was a high-speed crash and high-speed crashes you know are always going to have a higher risk of fire because the the vehicle is going to be much more severely impacted than a low low speed crash fuel systems in a ice vehicle are a big problem in high speed crashes and we've seen over the years a lot of high speed crashes resulting in fires in this case it's you know it's slightly different it's a battery but damage to the battery is significant in high speed crashes as well as we see with the ice fuel systems so we're continuing to see problems with emergency responders being able to put these fires out. We've talked about that in the past, and the NTSB has been pushing manufacturers to do a better job of that. We we still don't think we're quite there. You know, emergency responders are getting to the scenes of these crashes and having to go through a flip book or get on the internet to figure out, uh, you know, how to approach the vehicle, whether what type of configuration the vehicle has, how they're going to put the fire out, protect the occupants, all of these different things aren't standardized. And there's something that um, it's a very big challenge for uh, fire departments, particularly those that are, you know, volunteers and, and otherwise rural fire departments who don't have the capabilities that some of the urban fire departments do. So there's, um, you know, continuing to be issues in this area. I think that it, uh, the, the report said that in this particular case, that the firefighters did not have to consult any particular guidebook. They just squirted water on it. So they either were familiar with the the issue or they just ignored the special considerations. Your, your points are well taken. There does need to be st yeah. um, standardization and familiarity. But in this particular case, being, it doesn't seem to have been an issue. Being in the uh, Miami area, I'm going to guess that they just have a significant experience with Teslas. That seems to be one of the areas of the country that it attracts a lot more investment in Teslas than others. Hey, if you, uh, listener, if you happen to work for a uh, fire department or know somebody who works for a fire department, we would love to have a guest on from a fire department to talk about, in particular, these AV issues, or not AV, so EV issues and battery fires and and how each manufacturer has different systems for cutting off and disconnecting batteries and, and how they have any training to put out these systems, uh, put out these runaway fires. Um but yeah, so because we this is an ongoing issue that's not gonna, it's gonna, just going to keep getting worse, I imagine. Uh, but speaking of 
baloney because maybe I'm full of baloney. I don't know. Uh, Michael sent us this great article. We're going to have a link to it. Uh, the auto industry is full of baloney. Uh, the article is called Stop the Spin, How to Spot Nine Types of Auto Industry Disinformation. Uh, and it talks about um, basically blame the user, victim blaming. It's your fault this happened, which I love. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and how to, it, it's a great article. It talks about how to uh, avoid uh, the lies and the denial. So basically the manufacturers, which we've talked about a number of times, saying, hey, there is no problem. Hyundai Kia cars being stolen from kids off TikTok? That doesn't happen. No. Um, you know. So this is a this was a good Michael, what was your favorite parts of this? I like a couple parts. One of them is they talk about uh panaceas, which is to me is the the uh the industry's fundamental approach to pushing autonomous vehicles on us. They keep talking about how they're going to save the world, save the environment, uh, allow disabled folks to go anywhere they want and all these things. But they really haven't proven out any of those things in the use cases or at least in the vehicles we're seeing them put on the road so far. Um, so it, when you're the panacea approach is basically something we've talked about in in the area of AI, too, where we're pretending that these vehicles are going to be something perfect in the future without acknowledging that it's going to take a significant amount of work to get there. Um, and that's one interesting part of the article. And the other one was um, they were pointing out how complexity manufacturers or automakers often use complexity to try to say things to try to say that they can't do certain things is my experience for instance in the area of seatback safety where we see the front seats collapsing hitting killing injuring children and others in the back seats um we've often seen them say well this is just too complex we can't build the front seat to protect both the passenger in that seat as well as the people in other areas in the car and our response has always been you know that's a lie. You can do it. You're just not, you know, first of all, you're not valuing the folks that are in the backseat. There's been a long history of backseat safety being ignored in the auto industry because, you know, most of us, most of the time a car is being driven, it's the front seats that would be occupied. So <clears throat> the it, it, that's just another example of the type of mis, misinf disinformation we'll see occasionally from the industry when there's a safety issue that they really don't want to address. There's a book that should be required reading for everybody. Uh, the title of the book is On Bullshit. The author is Professor Harry Frankfurt from Princeton. And it's a wonderful uh, discussion of the difference between truth, lies, and bullshit. And it, 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 it really is very, very good. And it helps the scales fall from your eyes as you listen to a lot of conversations. And there is an awful lot of bullshit involved in, as he defines bullshit, involved in the, the promotion of any new automotive technology. So uh, I, I just wanted to give a plug to Professor Frankfurt. And I do highly recommend the book. All right. When you're not listening. Yeah. So, folks, you can go out and get a copy of On Bullshit or you can donate to the Center for Auto Safety. You or won't both. get a copy of On Bullshit, but or you can do both. Hey, if you, you know, you got deep pockets like that. I have no idea how much books cost anymore. I go to the library. That's a cheap uh, one. But, uh, you know, maybe that's a good name for our podcast. What do you think? It's a cheap one. <laughs> I, I think that would be a good name. My father would not be happy if we changed the name of the podcast to that. On bullshit? Yeah. Uh, well. <laughs> Speaking anyway. of that, there was another article, too, I saw. I think it was just yesterday where uh, I don't even know if I put it in the notes, but Dodge, there was this vehicle put out in 2021. It was the Dodge Durango Hellcat. And Dodge basically told all 3,000 people who bought these things that it was going to be a limited edition. I mean, these are people buying SUVs for a hundred thousand dollars plus. So they were expecting these things to be worth something. And then um, Dodge Chrysler, Stellantis, whatever they are now has come out with a 2023 model of the exact same thing. And so they are now being sued by all these owners who were hoping for a collector's item, but were basically lied to. 
I think anybody who buys a Dodge as a collector's item has, has already made a big step away from reality. That was in my thoughts as I read the article, Fred. <laughs> wow. I mean, you know, I want to pour one out for the poor Dodge owner who spent a hundred grand on a Dodge. I, Hey, I, I'm at a loss for words. So with that, I think it's time to move to the Tao of Fred. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. Uh, this week is a controversial one. This is one that I, I'm going to disagree with to some extent. This is the AV Bill of Rights. This is AV shall not be programmed to violate motor vehicle laws. Uh, take it away. Thank you. Uh, well, this is this is my forward-looking statement, but I don't think AVs are as good as people driving cars. And um, even if people are allowed to hedge the laws a little bit, I do not think AVs should be able to do that because as soon as you enter that universe, you've got to say, well, how far can you stretch the laws before it's acceptable? I think the, the line in the sand should be you cannot violate motor vehicle laws. And so let me let me geek out a little bit here and give you one example of why. Um, let's just think about speed limits, okay? Uh, robots can do a better job than humans in factory operations. Like if you if you want to make a piston that has very, very tight tolerances, there's nothing better than a well-programmed machine to do that. Human beings cannot do that. Back when I was a kid, the tolerances that were acceptable were one one-thousandth of an inch or what we call a mill. Now they're, they're routinely manufacturing uh, production parts to one ten-thousandth of an inch. Now, people often tout high tolerance as, as equal to good, but somebody once pointed out to me that a good machine is designed so that you can make it work with loose tolerances. I won't get into that, but you know that, that's a good point. But driving a car is not like making a piston in a factory. So there's a lot of variables. And, and one of the things that is really important is, uh, if you remember your physics, coefficient of friction, okay? Coefficient of friction relates to how much force, in the particular case of cars, can be um, transmitted from the car to the pavement by way of the tires, right? So if, the high, if you have a high coefficient of friction, you have a lot of force, you have a lot of control. If you have a low coefficient of friction, you have less force, less control. So let's think of the example of hydroplaning. Now we've, many of us experienced drivers have experienced hydroplaning at least once in our driving history. And what happens with hydroplaning is you hit water and because of your high speed, you're actually floating on the surface of that water, no longer contacting the road surface. Your coefficient of friction drops essentially to zero. You have no control over the car. You're skating on the surface, and that's not what cars are designed to do. Once you've done that and you survive the experience, you get very cautious about approaching situations where hydroplaning might occur because it's not a good thing. But how do you do that? Okay, how does a human being do that? Well, you, you look at the cars driving ahead of you. If they seem to be unstable, then that gives you a reason to put on, to tap the brakes, right? Slow down a little bit. You consider the, the weather. You consider the road condition. Is it a gravel road? Is it a, a, a pavement? Has it got ruts in it? Um, is it a muddy surface? All of these things affect the likelihood of your vehicle encountering a hydroplaning situation. Very complicated. Nobody's ever demonstrated that AVs are better than human beings at anticipating what might be a situation that causes your coefficient of friction to slip down to a very low and unsafe number. Um, speed limits for roads are based in part on the expectation by the designers that you have a reasonable coefficient of friction between you and or your tires have a reasonable coefficient of friction, right, which gives you adequate control of the car. You'll often see signs in flood conditions that say slow down, deep water, whatever. That's to affect hydroplaning. If, you're, if your AV is mindlessly exceeding the speed limit and it does not anticipate all of these things that come naturally to human beings, 
you can very easily put yourself in jeopardy because you have allowed the vehicle, the vehicle has allowed itself to exceed the posted speed limit, or in fact, the posted speed limit that may be on a sign that's transitory or, you know, showing up only to the people who are uh, able to read English language. Uh, so anyway, that's a long way of saying that there are a lot of examples where exceeding the speed limit which a human being might do, given their awareness of the road and their experience on the highway and all those kinds of things, would be a really bad idea for a self-driving vehicle to do because it could encounter situations that are simply not designed to and could never be designed to anticipate. So well, let, let me jump in because there's a, there's yeah, a couple spots where I'd want – where. I, I think speeding is fine. One, and a Navy will have to deal with the situation where there's somebody on the road who's driving erratically. You can't tell if they're drunk, they're not paying attention. And so we all speed up to get away from that person. Um, or, you know, because they could be driving slow and erratically and you just try and get away from them. You're on a highway. Uh, so you'd want yes. AB to do that. And the second reason is I have to poop. And... That's a serious situation where I need to get to the nearest bathroom as soon as possible. I need to poop. Let's go really fast. Well, you know, that's you're accepting the jeopardy of of your life versus dirty underwear. But, you know, that's a choice you are free to make. Um, Let me give you another example, though, as a counterexample. Let's say that you have a nail in your in your tire and you see that nail or you see the tire is soft as you're getting into your car you know as a human being that that's a situation you need to rectify you know that you can get the tire fixed so you would probably limp into a repair station get the nail pulled get the tire repaired do that okay if you are an av that's merely programmed to drive at the speed limit or exceed the speed limit you may have, uh, and you probably would have, no awareness of the imminent hazard due to the nail in your tire. Okay, so uh, another situation where excessive speed, even legally posted speed, might present a real hazard to your operation or the safety of the operation of the vehicle. So, yeah, there are situations where you need to get away. They're very rare. I, I would suggest, though, that often tapping the brakes is another way of getting away from erratic drivers. Um, if they are, you know, you can slow down and during distance too. I know you're from New York. I won't get into all the, you know, I won't get into all of that stuff about New York minute, but, but, you know, one approach is to speed up to get past it. Another approach is to slow down and let the hazard move away from you. But well, you sometimes know, they slow your choice. down. But I, you also got to keep in mind, I'm living in the future, so a nail in my tire, they're airless. I'm good. Well, in the future, everything will be better. We've talked about that. Okay, so- but, but, but seriously, so you have a, a whole section on there making sure they recognize and respond safely to signals, lights, railroad crossings, because we've seen issues with that with current AVs where they fail at this. Right. And we and we do know that... that um, Tesla, again, our, one of our favorite hope to be sponsors, we're still waiting for the check, thank you very much, um, did in fact program their vehicles on uh, full self-driving to roll through stop signs without stopping. That was, they were called on that by NHTSA and they uh, apparently have since uh, changed that so that you can no longer roll through stop signs. But, you know, there's an incremental process where you, you put the boundaries, you push against the boundaries the boundaries yield you push a little harder this is what is what is that uh theory called the broken window theory right the broken window principle i think that that applies as much to the software developers for avs as it does to any other human beings um i think some red lines should not be crossed and my opinion is that avs shall not be programmed or to violate motor vehicle laws. They should conform to the laws, as should everybody else. And I wonder, particularly speeding laws in this case, because for you know, for every mile per hour you're going over the speed limit, isn't there a corresponding loss of ability to respond quickly enough in, in a crash situation or something like that? 
No, absolutely. Sure. I mean, margins go down, the uh, forces go up, energy goes up, uh, all those things happen. But, you know, 85% of people are better than average drivers. So 85% (laughs) of people are going to exceed the speed limit perfectly safely. Right? Exactly. And going back to basic physics, the faster I go, the closer I get to approaching the speed of light in which I can become infinite and everywhere. There we go. Great. I I think AV manufacturers need to have not a WTF button. They need a I have to poop button. Um, and that will guide you to the nearest toilet. But, but hey, that's maybe we're getting a lot of insight into Anthony's car. You know what goes on in his head when he's in. Oh. Yeah, take it, take it easy on the coffee before you get in the car, Anthony. I think that'll help a lot. Yeah. Oh, speaking of recalls, uh, <laughs> let's go to the recall roundup. Strap in, time for the recall roundup. Um, we've got uh, this is a, another strange one. Uh, I don't know how this happens. This is from Kia. Uh, potentially 188,000 plus vehicles. The Kia K5s 2021 to 23. Uh, certain ones, the side curtain airbags may have been installed improperly during assembly at the Kia Georgia plant. Um, basically, they might have put in the side airbags upside down. Or yeah, we, we saw this one. Uh, I think it was last november they recalled the 2023 models where they'd found this problem of installing the side curtain airbags i don't know if it's backwards but basically it's they're installed in a way where they're twisted somehow and they're unable to deploy to protect anyone so they were made aware in january that um there was a 2021 vehicle that had i believe been in a crash and had the same issue and so now they're going back and recalling two more years of those vehicles to check them to make sure that the airbags weren't installed improperly. Crazy. Uh, here's another one. This is one that we a manufacturer we never touch on, really. Harbor Freight um, potentially involved 41,000 plus uh, hydraulic lifts. This is the high position motorcycle lifts. Uh, for certain units of the central hydraulics high position motorcycle lift the welds may be susceptible to fatigue cracking, which may lead to premature failure. Um, so what what exactly is this part of and why would I have a, a motorcycle lift and where would I keep such a thing? So this is I, I'm assuming this is used by guys who are doing maintenance on their motorcycles. Um Basically, it lifts them off the ground a couple of feet to get them up into an area where it's probably a lot more comfortable to work on. Um, but this isn't the first time that we've seen this with NHTSA on jack stands. You know, we typically think of NHTSA as covering, you know, cars, child seats, maybe, and some other related things. But you don't think about NHTSA as a regulator for something like a jack stand. But um, they do have regulatory authority and they can issue and, and ask for recalls on these things. So. Harbor Freight is generally, they're kind of like a discount um, retailer. So we've seen, you know, a couple of jack stand issues, not just on motorcycles, but also with cars. They had to, NHTSA had them, NHTSA actually issued a special warning in 2020, something that's kind of rare for a non-vehicle issue, but advising customers who had bought their vehicle jack stands to make sure they get them, um, make sure they have the recall performed so this is kind of unusual recall but you know it's something that is really important to guys who are working on their cars and motorcycles in their garage and don't want the vehicles falling on them all right there's a local story there's a local story last week about a um catalytic converter thief who was crushed to death while trying (laughs) to steal a catalytic converter uh, I assume because the jack that they're using to elevate the car had failed. So this is a this is a real thing. I had friends in high school who were also killed, uh, or a friend in high school who was also killed when Jack failed and crushed him as he was working on his car. So yeah, this is a this is a real thing. Well, make sure your jacks are okay then. And uh, hey, who knew that NHTSA doesn't just uh, cover cars? They cover. Uh, things that hold cars and vehicles um all right so the last recall we have this week is one that i can relate to uh ferrari you know 
They're uh, recalling 13 cars on the MY. Oh, no, that's Molly. You're on the M side. What vehicle is this called? They have such strange names. I believe it's the SF90. Oh, the yes, the 2021 to 2023 SF90. <laughs> I have the SF95. I mean, come on. Uh, 13 vehicles where the uh, the front. Uh, passenger seat sensor uh, is not set up correctly and if you have a child sitting there in a child seat the airbag could go off and kill them am i reading that correctly you are reading that correctly because there's no back seat in a ferrari is there no there's no back seat in these models so basically you're if you're i i don't know why anyone who can afford a Ferrari would not have a separate vehicle for transporting their children. They can clearly afford it. Um, I, you know, this, it's an odd recall in many ways because, you know, technically they're violating, you know, the law in many ways. Yeah. I didn't think you're allowed to have child seats in the front passenger seat. You don't want that. That's what I say. They're not violating the law. They're violating, you know, the NHTSA's guidance to move kids into the back seat. Don't put them in the front seat. But when you do put a child in the front seat, it is supposed to have a weight sensor to determine whether or not a child is in that seat and turn the airbags off to prevent injury to children or to small female passengers and the like. So that's not happening here. And so Ferrari is having to recall these 13 vehicles that likely never would have had a child seat in the front seat anyway, but maybe. So uh, if you're one of these 13 Ferrari owners, um, and you know, I'll see you at the next uh, meetup. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll show each, we'll trade our little Ferrari glasses, jackets, and whatnot. Uh, that's it for. Uh, recalls but hey this week we have listener mail listener tim palmer asks how about rodent damage to toyota wiring harnesses just had almost sixteen thousand dollars spent on our 2017 Mm. prius prime advanced not only that it took toyota nine winter weeks to come up with the needed parts hv battery during which the vehicle sat on the dealer's lot um hey tim i'm glad you're a listener to the show if you go back to i think it's episode three maybe four uh we we go in depth about rats eating your wiring systems but uh do you guys have anything to add on this a a sixteen thousand dollars to replace wiring sounds excessive to me that is really expensive that's definitely the highest repair i've heard of related to rats um and any other rodents we're talking about squirrels mice that was a a rodent episode there are a lot of different things that can get into your um, vehicle. A lot of what we talked about episode was whether or not they're actually targeting the soy-based wiring, which there is not good evidence for really one way or the other yet, I think is where we came out on that. Right. Um, but wouldn't it be great if you could sue rats? Yeah. But I mean, because I, I, a, a Prius Prime, I don't know what a Prius Prime Advanced is, but a Prius itself is not, not much more than $16,000 new, is it? I thought they were like in the low 20,000. The prime is probably more, closer to 40 or so. Uh, oh, is the prime the full uh, EV version? No, I think it's a, 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 a just a, what did they say, a Prius? I'm thinking of the yeah, RAV4 a, prime. Yeah, no, this is um, a Prius prime advanced. I'm sure if it's advanced, it's going for more than 40,000, Anthony. Come on. I, I've, I have no idea. No, I'm, you know how I'm, much advanced costs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to take a quick look. Uh, Let's see a 2023. Um, oh, it's well, not- while, while you're looking, I just want to offer our our sympathy to the guy. Sixteen thousand dollars is an awful lot to pay for a repair of any kind. Yeah, that's that's what I'm curious about. Yeah, the the 2022 Prius Prime starts at twenty eight thousand. So I mean, sixteen k for wiring. Um, yeah, well, it sounded I like the, the whole the battery and everything was damaged somehow. I don't know if yeah. there was a short caused by the rats or what, but um, that is a, a that is a massive repair. Yeah, well, it's, it's uh, probably sorry. probably really difficult to reroute the wires and run the new wires through the frame, and uh-huh. you know, it's probably an. I, I my guess is that the cost of the parts themselves was only a small part of that overall charge to repair it. Uh, right. I mean, what a nightmare trying to re- rerun all those wires through all those frame members and 
Just, just, just bad. Just bad. Is this one of these things where you guys suggest, you know, you go into a shady neighborhood, leave all the doors open, leave the keys on the seat and just walk away? I would never suggest that. No, no. And no, I wouldn't suggest that either. Um, but hey, Tim, let us know how that goes. And uh, hopefully your insurance company is not listening to the show. Uh, if anyone else has any listener mail, it's free to write in. Go ahead, write in a question, a comment, a concern, anything at all you want. Uh, and we'll uh, we'll get to it and we'll answer it. And if you want to contribute money, you don't even have to ask a question. Just go to autosafety.org, click on Donate Now. I think it says Donate Now. No, it says Donate. Jeez. Uh, and become a monthly donor. Five bucks a month. That's it. Sixty bucks a year. Five bucks a month. Come on, do it. It's advanced. And send us your send us your <laughs> names for this orphan podcast. We, you know, the best most creative suggestions so far have come from me, and I'm just a lunch bucket engineer. So, I'm sure there's better better opportunities out there. Yeah. And he thinks his ideas are 85 percent better than everyone else. And, and no, we're not going with Kari McCarface. Uh, well, <laughs> there goes there goes my suggestion. Eighty five percent true. There we go. All right. Thanks, listeners. We'll be back next week. Thanks, Thank everybody. Bye-bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.